Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking. Today we are going to be talking about fish environmental stress with Dr. Jesse Sanders. Jesse is a certified aquatic veterinarian through the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association and the Chief Veterinarian of Aquatic Veterinary Services in California. She is also a past president of the American Association of Fish Veterinarians. So in this episode, we are going to be talking about how environmental factors can cause stress in goldfish and betafish, two of the most commonly kept fish species in the world. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Jesse Sanders. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to talk about water quality. It's one of my favorite things to talk about with fish. That's great. Before we dive in, though, do you mind, just for the people that don't know you, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how you became an aquatic veterinarian, that'd be great. Sure. So when I was a little kid, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I really had no idea at the time that there were veterinarians who pretty much treated anything but cats and dogs and horses. So I ended up doing some volunteer work for the local aquarium when I was an undergraduate student. And I absolutely loved every minute that I was there working with the fish collections. I harassed the aquarist staff to no end and then moved on to harassing the veterinary staff. And they kind of put me on a path of, you know, maybe you should go to veterinary school and try to become an aquarium veterinarian, which I, you know, went to vet school all gung-ho. But unfortunately, the school that I went to They didn't really quite know what to do with a veterinary student that kind of wanted to do something that wasn't traditional veterinary medicine. So I kind of got sidetracked a little bit during my veterinary career until um, in between my second and third year, I had the opportunity to do a great program known as Aquavet. It's offered between Cornell and the University of Pennsylvania. And it was the most eye-opening, awe-inspiring collection of individuals who were all doing exactly what I wanted with aquatic medicine. And, you know, they had the aquarium veterinarians, the marine mammal veterinarians, but there was this one veterinarian who taught our surgery lecture, uh, Dr. Helen Sweeney, who was a private practice veterinarian. And she was just the coolest person I had ever met. So I had the unique chance to go up to her practice when I was on my clinical rotation. We're required to do a two-week, you know, just kind of private practice, which is completely different from the stress and rigor of veterinary school. And the way that she ran her practice and dealt with her clients and her staff was just the light was shining. And I knew exactly like, this is, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. So well, after I graduated, I looked around for, you know, just a standard veterinary job that, you know, I'd be able to augment by being able to see fish. You'd think this would be a big selling point. Well, unfortunately, nobody really went for it. So where I am in California, we are surrounded by koi. They're just popping up all over the place. So I knew the market was there. So just said, you know what, we're going to go for it and try to do all aquatics. And it has been, this, this is what I've been put on this earth to do is to help pet fish. And I love what I do. And I am so happy doing what I do and where I ended up. Wow, that's a, such a brave move, just going straight into aquatics like that. What was one major decision that really made a big impact on where you are now? Sounds like that you had quite a few major decisions which actually got you where you are now. Yes, I think I kind of already answered that. that yes. <laughs> shadowing Dr. Sweeney. I mean, coming out of this like, super stressful, super intense 
environment that is veterinary school and going out into quote unquote the real world and seeing this completely, you know, other aspect of veterinary medicine that's calm, everybody works together, they're all there for the pet's best interest. I mean, a lot of the cases are, you know, Fluffy's ears are a little itchy or this turtle's impacted with a giant thing of poo. But the way she handled everything, I was just so amazed by how awesome she made her job look. Cool. So I think that's had the biggest impact on kind of turning me, you know, aquarium veterinarians are are amazing. You get the same collection. You get to work with a very specific set of animals. But jobs for that are so scarce. And unfortunately, you really got to play the game sometimes. And I'm just a little impatient. So (laughs) I knew that there was this other opportunity. But it was just so nice just to have her kind of help me launch, essentially. She was able to help me with, you know, the list of tools that I needed, where I needed to buy things from, and really just kind of got me started where now I've known a lot more, but I hopefully will be able to pass that on to the next generation like she was able to do that for me. So let's uh, dive into the topic of today, uh, fish environmental stress and fish water quality. What is the ideal aquarium setup for goldfish and betta fish? Sure. So both of these fish obviously need filtered tanks. Unfortunately, betta fish, since they have that very specialized labyrinth organ, they kind of get the short stick a lot and are put in, you know, water that would only be suitable for them in life and death conditions. Yes, they're able to survive, but they do so much better in a tank that has proper filtration and heat. They are tropical fish, so obviously they need heat. And if you're just going to keep a little beta by themselves, they don't need a ton of room, at least five gallons, 10 always better. But they have these long, ornate fins, which if you have a lot of stuff in the tank with them and a lot of flow kind of pushing them around from the filter, it does cause a lot of kind of self-trauma. And a lot of people can mistake that for fin rot when it's really just your fish has too much stuff in the tank. Uh, for goldfish in particular, Again, they don't really need the heat, but they are very, very messy critters, and they can get insanely large. The standard comet goldfish can be as big as a dinner plate. I mean, we've had one goldfish in his own 100-gallon tank, and then you see, you know, four or five goldfish packed into like a little 10-gallon tank. It's just not a good environment. They're always going to have problems with water chemistry. So with goldfish, give them lots of room. You're looking to, you know, start with 20 gallons of fish. They're probably going to need at least 50 to 100 by the time they're mature. And they need a lot of filtration just because they're not the most efficient feed to mass converters. So they poop a lot, which, you know, is just the way that they're built. Sure. And I think one gallon is equal to roughly four liters. Um, So it's 3.8. So it's actually 38 liters. Great. Yes. And then it'll be 19 liters for a five. Again, it depends on the fish. Some fish don't like having giant bases and they like, you know, having their little nooks and crannies that they like to hide out. But for most fish, maybe not the betta fish, but the goldfish in particular, uh, bigger is always better. Okay. What sort of filtration is good? So, I mean, canisters are fine and good and all, but I kind of see those as the next step. So those filters that hang on the back that a lot of people kind of ridicule, those are really good for most common pet fish. They're very accessible. They do a really good job of filtering and you don't have to worry about all the hoses and connecting stuff and making sure the flow is correct like you have with a canister. It's a lot more beginner friendly. Goldfish, again, if it's a standard comet long-bodied fish, they can put up with that, that filtration flow fairly well. 
If it is a fancy variety, depending on how well they swim, they might need some help with some of the, you know, the high flow filters. A lot of those are adjustable, so you can actually crank them all the way down. Um, and that's especially true for the betta fish as well. Sometimes you need to kind of divert the flow coming from the filter just so they don't get pushed around. The floss kind of bubble filters, they're okay. They're better than nothing. But really those hang on the back filters, that's kind of, you know, the middle of the road that we recommend for most people. And do you mind just telling us a little bit about the labyrinth organ? I must say I don't know too much about betta fish. Yes, so this is a specialized adaptation that that whole group of uh, labyrinth fishes, including some gouramis, have. It's basically a very primitive lung that actually allows them to take some oxygen out of the air. Now, this has kind of evolved in these fish because where they are in the wild, they're in areas that at times the water level is very, very low and they're, you know, stuck in some little stagnant puddle until the rains come back. So with this organ they're able to survive again until the rains come back and they're able to swim around again. But while they're stuck in a little stagnant puddle with really high ammonia, at least they're able to get some oxygen from still water. Okay, interesting. So in terms of temperatures, what do you recommend your clients do to make sure they can manage water temperatures well? And and this is more for the tropical betta fish because goldfish... Uh, I would think, have a tolerance for a wider range of temperatures. Yes, and I apologize. I'm not that good at converting from Fahrenheit to Celsius, so I apologize. <laughs> oh, don't don't bother. Uh, I think there's no point. I think the listeners can make their own conversions. It is really hard to keep a small volume of water consistently heated, and there's really not a lot you can do no matter what kind of heater you have Um, because obviously if you get a really big heater it's going to make the problem worse so if you do tend to have problems with your tank fluctuating in temperature putting insulation around the sides either if it's cardboard or an old blanket making sure that it's not in any direct sunlight or under an air conditioning vent Obviously, this is another thing. If your tank is bigger and has more volume, it will be easier to keep at a consistent temperature. Unfortunately, there's just no great ways to keep a small volume of water consistently heated, and it's going to vary a little bit. But as long as your your betta fish is staying around that 80 degree Fahrenheit threshold, if he bounces around a little bit during the day and the night, it'll probably be just fine. And then in terms of like plants and substrate that you put in there are there any recommendations on what is good or how many plants should be in there or anything like that so for the betta fish again the biggest consideration is that their fins are very long and delicate so any plants that have root balls that are exposed or spiky leaves are really not recommended even some of the fake betta plants that they make aren't great for bettas As far as the substrate goes, it really doesn't matter all that much for them. They're not going to be sitting on the bottom. Does matter a little bit for goldfish because they are highly foraging fish. That's just part of their normal behavior to go down and kind of root around in the soil. So you might be pretty much expecting them to play with whatever you put in the tank. A lot of them are known for destroying plants. Even if they're well-fed, some fish are just a little naughty and like to go tear everything up especially if they get a whiff of something delicious down in the root structure somewhere. <laughs> Great. For those destructive fish, do you put big pebbles in there or like, or sometimes nothing at all? 
Uh, you can certainly go with big pebbles. It does make it harder to clean. Um, okay. You can just have a bare substrate. There doesn't have to be anything down there at all. Okay, fair enough. And when it comes to introducing new fish into an aquarium system, what sort of quarantine do you do? So quarantine is essentially the practice of when you bring in a new fish is to put them in a completely separate, isolated system with separate equipment. You know, the water can't splash between the two tanks. And they sit there and they kind of get observed for a, a period of time. Now, our office and practice has a very, very conservative setting of about four to six weeks in quarantine, which most pet owners completely ignore. So that timeline, we've set that up specifically based on, you know, with this species, these are all the bacteria, parasites, viruses that you could potentially see. And they have to obviously be with the fish in that environment. And then there's a set time period of incubation before the fish will show clinical signs. And unfortunately, not all fish, not all bacteria, parasites read the rule book on this. So obviously we added another week just to kind of give us some wiggle room. But if your fish is able to clear that quarantine period, there's a good chance that they're in good health. I mean, unfortunately, you can't sterilize a fish, so they're always going to have bacteria, parasites. They're always going to be on them. So there's always a little bit of a risk, but it's severely lessened when they've been able to clear that quarantine. And certainly, if they get sick in quarantine, it means you only have to, you know, take care of one fish versus an entire established system with who knows however many fish, invertebrates, plants, everything. Thanks for um, answering that. I mostly asked it uh, because I had a an, another friend, a vet, who introduced a fish without quarantining and she'd managed to spread anchor worm throughout her tank with all her fish oh. and she was so annoyed. Yeah, I, I, that's annoyed's one way to put it. I would, I would be very, very sad for those poor little fish. Oh, that must be awful. Yes. I mean, she managed to treat it, but uh, it took a long time. Anyway, I think that's good in terms of setup. I think there's obviously a lot more detail on things that we could go through and things like that, but I think we'll, we may cover that as we talk about the different water quality parameters that you commonly assess. However, after you talk about the aquarium setup with your clients, are there any other specific uh, questions about history that you'd like to ask your clients? Sure. So obviously, other than you know going through how the filters are cleaned, a lot of filter media companies put on the box that you have to toss your old filters and replace them on a regular basis. Um, this is a complete and total lie. Obviously, they do that to sell more product, but really when you do that, you're getting rid of all those good bacteria that run your nitrogen cycle so well. You're just growing them and throwing them away. So unfortunately, you're just setting yourself back at zero. Really, the best way to clean your filters is after you've, say, done your water change and you have your bucket full of dirty water, is you take your filter media, you put it in the dirty water and swish it around a little bit and you put it back and it will not be clean. It will smell funny, but it will still work, which is one of the biggest, you know, issues that we see with a lot of new people that, you know, I know it says it to do it on the box, but you never really question why. So that's one of the most common problems that we see. Not using a gravel vacuum, so getting down in the substrate. Um, I know it sounds dirty and those tubes look a little funny to use, but once you get the hang of it, uh, using a gravel vacuum makes the job of cleaning the tank so much 
easier. So yeah, those, those are the two biggest things we see, especially with beginners, just as far as better ways to take care of the tank. Sure. And how often should they be cleaning? It really depends on how many fish you have in, you know, how many gallons um, and what they're being fed. So if we take, say, a betta tank, for example, you know, you have one fish and five gallons, you might need to clean the filter once every couple months and do a water change every couple weeks. But with a goldfish, you know, filthy little fish, eating a lot, pooping a lot, you're probably looking at cleaning the filters every other week and doing a water change once a week. How much water should be changed every time you, um, I guess, change the water? Is there a percentage that you sort of aim for? It really depends on what your nitrate levels are doing. So the major point of doing water changes is to remove the nitrates, which is the end of your nitrogen cycle. You want to make sure that those are staying at 20 milligrams per liter or less for most pet fish species. And again, it's going to depend on how densely stocked your tank is, how much protein is in the fish's diet. So if you absolutely cannot test, you don't want to test, we recommend at least 10% a week or you can do 25% every other week. And that's, again, just kind of a baseline to get started. If you have the nitrate levels, it makes things a lot easier. I mean, this sounds so stupid, but how, how often do these fish need to be fed? And I guess in situations where they're being overfed, I assume that having a lot of the just uneaten food in the tank is not good for the water quality. Oh, no. For the goldfish, since they can tolerate such a wide temperature range, um, their metabolism is really going to be dictated by the temperature of the water. So obviously, if they're not that hungry, the water is cold, all that extra food floating around is unfortunately just going to be adding more ammonia back into your system. So always recommend if they're not going to eat it, just net it out. Fish don't really save snacks for later. If it's, you know, a little bit warmer, most goldfish are kept around room temperature. So that'll be feedings at least once a day. If you're going to be going into, say, the upper 70 degrees Fahrenheit, it might be twice a day or just kind of a lighter feeding in the evening. For the betta fish, since they are tropical, they do best with small meals throughout the day. So two to three feedings for them. And there is a big problem in betta fish where they are fed very large meals and it kind of gets compacted into a little poo pellet in their bellies that they actually can't pass. So unfortunately with those fish, it's very difficult to get them uncompacted. Um, they're just so small. Our treatment options are very limited. So Per feeding for a betta fish, we recommend no more pellets that could theoretically fit in the globe of one eyeball. And it's just hard to give them, you know, you can't say a number because the betta pellets, they're still varied in size. I've seen some that are super tiny and some that are ginormous. So amount per feeding is about the amount of pellets that could fit in their eyeball. And that'll be two to three times a day because, again, they're warm. They're tropical fish. Great. And when you're presented with a fish that potentially has environmental stress problems, are they generally acute or chronic issues? So unfortunately, we do see a bit of both of that. With the water quality issues in particular, it does tend to be more chronic problems, just because, again, a fish that's sitting in terrible water chemistry, it's not life or death for them. When you're in a chronic stress environment, what it does is it's just the same as you getting super stressed out, I'm getting super stressed, and it just perpetuates for a long period of time that you get sick more often, 
you don't feel like doing anything, and it really just opens up the fish to more secondary infections. So most of the time, when we are dealing with a situation of poor water chemistry, the owners actually called us because the fish has a parasite, there is an ulcer from a bacteria, they're just not doing that well, they have a decreased appetite, they're not swimming as much. It can be very subtle changes when dealing with water chemistry issues. And then, you know, if you have a fish that blew through quarantine and is, you know, throwing parasites all over the tank, that's a more acute problem that the owners are usually able to, to pinpoint faster. What are your initial diagnostic steps? Yes. So unlike, you know, your fuzzy cat or dog exam, we can't really do the typical pulse respiration, you know, checking out the heart and lungs. So with fish, it's really critical that we do water quality testing. So our practice routinely tests ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, which is the three steps of your nitrogen cycle. We'll test your pH and your KH, which is your carbonate alkalinity. Um, temperature for marine systems, we definitely do salinity. We can do oxygen, carbon dioxide, chlorine, and copper. Certainly, we can also do total hardness. I've kind of stopped testing it in this area of California just because all the water is hard. Unless the owner is using bottled water or reverse osmosis water, known as RO water, we really don't tend to test for it just because I know it's going to be up off the chart. But really having that initial data set goes a really long way in kind of putting together an entire fish case. And this I can do, obviously, without stressing the fish and putting hands on them at all. What sort of equipment do you need to be able to test all these parameters? Or what do you like to use? So I have a fish farming test kit from Hawk. So that's H-A-C-H. Available online all over the world. And basically they have a good chunk of these kits already in one big kit together. I do have to get the nitrate, copper, and chlorine separate. And I also just have a little uh, electric probe for the salinity in ponds and tanks. I have a more fancy refractometer for the salt marine tanks. Okay, and how do you test oxygen and carbon dioxide saturation? I actually don't test for the carbon dioxide that often for pet species. It's mostly for aquaculture when fish are just really, really kind of packed in. The oxygen test that we use, it's not an electronic probe. In all honesty, I have no idea the science behind it. But it's able to give me a calculation of milligrams per liter of oxygen. And this is really important with ponds in particular that have lots of algae growth and tanks that are just kind of swimming in algae because during the day photosynthesis is great making lots of oxygen but when the sun goes down and there's no light in the tank it'll start sucking the oxygen out of the water which obviously they're tiny little single-celled organisms they're going to beat fish all the time so that's usually our biggest concern with oxygen levels in tanks and ponds So I did want to talk about algae a little bit later as well, but I do find it interesting that the oxygen levels will vary depending on what time of day you measure it. It'll alter your pH levels too, because the carbon dioxide's an acidifier. On that note, is there an optimal time to take water samples? If you're able to do it before the sun comes up, that's going to kind of give you a base level. And then if you do it again right before the sun goes down. Um, You're probably going to notice a pretty sizable, we'll say 0.4 to 0.5 swing in your pH. And that's normal for most systems. And again, it's going to depend on 
how many fish you have, how active they are. But certainly that way, and especially if your KH is iffy, that's going to give you an idea if you have enough KH in there for your system to actually kind of be stabilized. Is there any other diagnostic tests apart from testing water quality that you would do in your initial workup? If it's a fish that is severely depressed, the water chemistry is reading really terrible, I probably won't put hands on that fish just because they're so stressed out. And given the water chemistry, I mean, we have something to work with. But if the water chemistry is looking okay, the fish is looking not great, but okay, they will get a physical exam. So with that, I mean, part of the physical exam of fish is a behavioral assessment. So this is just watching the fish swim around their tank, making sure their buoyancy is normal, their body position is normal. Are they able to use all their fins? Are they able to, you know, turn left and right at the same time? And then at the very end, we'll catch them in a net and put them in a tub with some sedation. They'll have a full, you know, hands-on, do sampling for parasites, check out the gill condition. The skin and the gills are actually looked at under the microscope. So that gives us a better idea of the structure of the gill. We can see kind of the past issues if the fish is having nutritional issues or there has been issues with poor water chemistry. It will show up in the gills. And certainly if there's any parasites running around, those will be very apparent very quickly. So once they're done with their exam, they can go back in. We use a medication known as MS-222, very safe, very reversible, and the fish usually wake up in a couple minutes. And how do you perform sedation on beta fish when they have that specialized labyrinth organ which stops them from being effectively sedated? I do them as best I can. The only issue with betas is they are so small. So usually it's just going to be a gross exam. Um, Certainly we'll just, you know, kind of pick up the operculum, see what color the gill tissue is. That's about the only sampling we can do for that. And certainly, you know, if there's any lumps or bumps on their body, we might be able to do just a quick swab on that. But unfortunately, beta exams are very, very limited. Okay. And do you still use that MS-222 for betas as well or not not at all well we can but if we put it in the water they can just switch to breathing air (laughs) oh okay um, (laughs) i see what you mean work that well i've tried (laughs) i tried it for a very long time before realizing it's like you know what he's probably avoiding drinking in this funky juice because he knows that it's going to be causing him problems so we try to do very, very limited hands-on exams i usually keep them in a net the whole time because they are jumpers they like to jump so we'll just do a quick physical exam. Mostly problems with bettas are going to be environmental and not actually the fish themselves. Interesting. Thank you. Can we now please move on to talking about nitrate, nitrite, and ammonia and how it relates to water quality? Sure. So the main fish waste product is ammonia, and it's mostly actually excreted out through the gills in freshwater fish, not so much in the urine. And again, this ammonia mostly comes from the high protein in their diet, which, you know, a fish swimming around constantly, they use a lot of energy, so they need a lot of protein. Now, your fish filtration, the biologic filtration, has thousands upon thousands of different bacteria colonies. We used to think it was all the nitrosomus and nitrobacter genus of bacteria, but we've come to find out that there is just so many different ones. So whatever's in your tank might not be the same as the tank next to it or even your neighbor's tank. And these bacteria will take the ammonia out on an oxygen group and convert it into nitrite. 
So unfortunately, nitrite is also very toxic. At high levels, this has its own separate disease known as methemoglobinemia, also known as brown blood disease. And what happens in this is the nitrite levels will actually get into the fish's bloodstream and kick the oxygen off of the hemoglobin in the fish's blood, turning it brown. So no matter how much oxygen you put in that tank, their blood can't carry it due to that high nitrite levels. Well, thankfully, you add another oxygen group from those lovely bacteria in your filter, and it will convert it to nitrate. Now, this is the safest stage of the cycle. Goldfish and bettas have a fairly high tolerance for this level. Plants and algae will use it as a food source, but there's really no other way that it's coming out of your tank unless that you're doing those regular water changes that we already talked about. And what's the normal and abnormal values for those three parameters? So the ammonia should be at 0.1 milligrams per liter or less, which I know is beyond the testing capabilities of many test kits. So at least the ones here in the States, it goes from 0 to 0.25. So if it is actually 0.1, I'm not sure what exact color it would show up on that scale. Probably somewhere in between, but I can't be certain. So I know it's really hard for people to kind of pin that down. Certainly if you're getting up past to the 0.25. If it's at the 0.5 level, obviously you've gone off the rails somewhere. In established tanks, nitrite should always be zero. If you ever have nitrite in an established tank, it probably means that you're cleaning your filters a little bit too well. Either that or you have a big pile of ammonia somewhere in your tank. You know, there's a big pile of food that's rotting, fish passed away that you don't know about, for the nitrate levels, safe levels for most pet fish species is going to be 20 milligrams per liter or less. Less is always better. If you're able to maintain five, great. But again, it's mostly the goldfish that are going to be the ones that push you up to that higher limit. Again, just because they're not the most efficient converters. Beta tanks, especially if they're owned by themselves, you're going to be have to be really lazy with your maintenance to even get them close to those levels. Hmm. That's really useful information. Can you please elaborate a little bit on how you establish the ammonia cycle in a new tank and when it's appropriate to introduce new fish into the tank? Sure. So there's two ways to set up a new tank. The first is to start with fish, but at a very, very low bio load. So if you, say, have a 100-gallon tank, you're going to put four goldfish in there. You start with one or two of them. Give them a couple weeks. Um, again, it's going to take four to six weeks just to work everything through. You're going to have an ammonia spike. That's going to move to a nitrite spike and then nitrate. There's really no way around it, but by having fewer fish in there, those spikes are going to be significantly smaller than, say, dumping all the fish in the tank at once and having to deal with bigger spikes. The other alternative is to do a fishless cycle. Now, we don't recommend this for beginners because you have to keep on top of your water chemistry levels, and you have to understand that these bacteria require ammonia to survive. It's what, you know, keeps them alive, keeps them happy. So if you start to see everything converting over and you stop feeding those bacteria at the beginning, they're all going to die and you're just going to be doing a fish cycle rather than a fishless cycle without even realizing it. So I understand the instant gratification of getting a tank and dumping a whole bunch of fish in there. 
unfortunately, it's the number one reason that most people leave the hobby is they don't realize that that ammonia spike is coming. And if the fish survive, it, it takes a couple weeks to, to get it maintained. I mean, we have a, a pond going through it right now and the owner is beside herself because they have parasites and all these other problems. But I'm like, look, it's just, it takes time. There is no magical fix unless you have, you know, another tank with the same species right next to it. You can steal some of that filter media and put it in the new tank and hope that most of it survives. That's really the only way that you can kind of kickstart a brand new system is if you have filter media from comparable species to swipe very close by. Sure. And what is your opinion on, oh, I've read about all these, I guess, there's all these products that sort of claim that they can speed up the cycle or like buy on the ammonia. What is your opinion on all these things? There's actually two different products that you're talking about. So they have the beneficial bacteria that you can put in your tank and it's supposed to, you know, instantly start your filter. And unfortunately, a lot of these products, A, if there's anything left alive in the container, is usually just going to be one species. And it might not be the right species for your tank. We just did a bunch of test trials in these when we were getting systems up and running. And unfortunately, they all failed except one that maybe shortened the cycle by a week. So unfortunately, it's just really not worth your money. You're going to be going through the same thing anyway, so you might as well save that. Now, there's also products that will bind ammonia. And unfortunately, in doing that, you're going to bind it and take it away from the filter. So by overbinding the ammonia, you're just going to starve your biologic filtration. So unfortunately, what you think is doing to help is actually pushing you back again. So I understand it's very scary to see those ammonia levels go up, but by binding it all up again, you're not doing yourself any favors. It really comes down to checking your levels, and if they're too high, you do water changes, which nobody wants to hear, but it is really the only way to properly cycle a tank is to make sure you stay on top of your water changes or just start with a really low bio load of fish and slowly work your way up to filling the tank. That's the best way to do it. So when they talk about new tank syndrome, is that when they just put too many fish in there and you're getting these ammonia spikes and then all those problems is happening because of that? Yes, that is exactly new tank syndrome. Okay, so in yeah. those situations, do you remove some of the fish and have to put them elsewhere? Or, I mean, what's the sort of approach that you take when you have a client that comes in with this problem? It would be great if you could move the fish to some other systems and kind of dilute your problem out. But a lot of people do not have the option. So it's going to come down to doing heavy water changes just to bring your levels back down to a place where the fish can tolerate it. But your filter is still going to kind of get kickstarted and have something to, to eat and get started with. Unfortunately, it comes down to water changes if it's too late to to dilute the fish out through multiple systems. That would be great if you could do that, but I know a lot of people don't have access to additional tanks. Sure, sure. I was just thinking thinking on the fly kind of thing. So back to talking about an established tank and having ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate problems. What sort of clinical signs do fish that live in these types of aquarium systems present with? Yeah, so it actually sometimes depends on the fish themselves. Some, I mean, we could be talking about all different goldfish here. Um, some goldfish are just more sensitive to changes in water chemistry than others, and you might see decreased appetite. They might not be swimming around as much. They might just park themselves in a corner and not really be interested in doing much of anything. 
And the other fish in the tank could be swimming around acting like nothing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yes, there is obviously an increased chance of uh, bacteria and parasites. Parasites more commonly with the new tank syndrome, just because they will grow and replicate quicker. Um, Bacteria take a little bit longer. So that's more with issues of, say, chronic stress that, say, if you are using that binder and just slowly, you know, setting yourself up again and again, those prolonged issues usually cause the bacterial issues. Okay. And I know you just mentioned that you use heavy water changes for the new tank syndrome, but if you see problems like this, broadly speaking, if you see problems where there is problems with the ammonia and things like that, is the treatment similar in terms of doing water changes or is there a different approach for established systems? There can be also problems with high ammonia in the reverse of what's called old tank syndrome. So in this instance, what has happened has there's not enough KH or carbonate alkalinity and your pH has slowly crept down, down, down. Off all your biologic filtration, the ammonia is really high, but at that lower pH, it actually converts the ammonia to a non-toxic form. So with this, we also have a similar issue of having a very high ammonia, but our pH and KH would be ridiculously low. Now, if we were to do a big water change and swing the pH back real quick, that could be very dangerous to the fish. So with that, it's going to be smaller water changes more frequently, and certainly we have to check the KH of the source water. So this is especially important if you're using any sort of RO or heavily filtered water. Unfortunately, it filters a little too well and takes some of that KH out. So if you're not supplementing it with either basic baking soda or you have a chemical mix that you like, that could really make a difference. And if you do those big water changes, you could be making things worse. So it's really important that you assess the the pH before you start doing any sort of heavy water changes. Okay, sure. And when you talk about big and small water changes, how much actually is that? So big changes would be up to 50%. You really don't want to have to do more than 50% at one time. Little tiny water changes, we're talking like 5 maybe 10%. Just change a little bit of water and you're going to do it more frequently rather than doing a big water change all at once. And in terms of pH changes, how do you actually fix that? So especially if we do notice something that is wrong with the the pond and the pH is wrong, the first thing I'm going to do is go and check the source water. And it doesn't matter if it's a tank, if it's a pond, a lot of the times the owner might be doing everything right and they just have terrible water that's coming in and they're not going to know that unless they actually test it. So that solves most of the problems by, you know, just adding it's a ridiculous, like a quarter teaspoon per 10 gallons of water is really all you need for adequate KH. Oh, so wow. it's a very tiny, tiny, tiny amount. You don't have to dump like a whole cup in there because then you're just, <laughs> you're just going to blow your system up. So it's really important just to do slow and steady when it comes to fixing any issues with pH. Okay, sure. So I did want to go through each of the water quality parameters, but I think um, now that we've sort of talked a little bit about pH, if we can go on with that and talk about what is the normal pH uh, in goldfish and betta fish. Yes. So pH, just to kind of get a standard definition, again, we're digging out our, our high school and middle school chemistry classes, is the inverse log measure of the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. And the more hydrogen ions you have, the lower your pH will be. That's what we call something that's acidic. So 
This is going to affect a lot of different biological processes. And in fish, it's really important at the gill water interface because all those ions for waste being transported across will kind of have different speeds depending on how much hydrogen ion activity they have out there in space. So the KH is your carbonate alkalinity, which is also a measure of your buffers. So these buffers will bind with those rogue hydrogen ions and keep your pH stable. So that's kind of how those two go together. pH ranges for goldfish. I mean, again, these, these animals are miraculous and can tolerate anything between a six and a nine. What's really important for them and a lot of other fish species is that you keep it stable. So no more than, say, a 0.4 to 0.5 fluctuation throughout the day, and it has to go insanely slowly. Bettas can also tolerate kind of a wider range. I don't know why everyone says they have to be at 7. I have personally never seen a betta at perfect 7.0 water. In our area of California, it's always 8, 8.5, and, and they do just fine. But again, it's very important that the level stays as stable as possible for no matter what species you're working with. That's really interesting. You mentioned buffer before. How much buffer should we be adding to an aquarium system? So it really depends on your source water. Here where we are in California, a lot of people have adequate levels coming into their tap. But if you're using bottled water, RO water, heavily filtered water, it might be a little bit too low. We recommend at least 100 milligrams per liter for goldfish and bettas. This is mid-range tolerance, not too soft, not too hard, but they, they do fine in hard water as well. It's really the soft water you want to look out for. And certainly there are products available if you want to, say, reverse engineer your water, start with RO filtered water, and add all those chemicals back in. A lot of people like to do that for more sensitive marine species. You really don't have to do it with a goldfish or a betta unless your source water just isn't that great to begin with. And there might be many different reasons that you don't want to use your tap water. But you don't have to buy the fancy supplements. The standard baking soda that you get for your 79 cents a box at the store works just fine. Just quickly, what is RO water? RO water is reverse osmosis water. Essentially what they're doing is taking water molecules, breaking them into their separate oxygen and hydrogen ions, and then putting them back together. So it's a very pure, neutral water source that basically doesn't have anything else in it. So essentially you're starting from scratch water. Now, with pH imbalances, how can vets go about fixing uh, two acidic environments or two alkaline environments? Uh, I actually don't have any problems with systems being too alkaline. When you put fish in an environment that they're going to be respirating, they're going to put out carbon dioxide, and that's going to acidify the environment. So with almost all fish species, you're looking at an acidic situation. And again, depending on if your source water coming in is okay, say your pH is 7.5, your KH is up over 100, that's, that's perfectly fine to use for all your water changes just to make sure you add the appropriate conditioner to take out the chlorine and the chloramine. And again, you're just going to do those really tiny water changes more frequently. So you're going to do 5 maybe 7 8% per day, and just very slowly bring the pH back to where it's supposed to be. Now, if your source water 
doesn't have enough KH and you're going to put in a tiny, tiny little bit of baking soda. And that will, again, kind of bring up your KH in the water. And then you can use that the same as you say, wood standard tap water. I imagine if you have a, a fish that's really, really sick and things like that, is there any way to speed that process up or does that just cause more problems because you're just changing the pH too quickly? Yes. Unfortunately, if you do have a fish that is sick and you swing the pH too fast, it is pretty much a certain death. It's really hard with some of these cases that, you know, the fish isn't doing well and we have to be really careful about very slowly bringing the water chemistry back to where it needs to be. It's hard and as a veterinarian, I do the best to make sure that that fish is in, you know, the best environment they can be. Certainly if it's a life or death and we just have to make that leap, then that's, again, it's going to be quantified on a case-by-case basis of this. Is this in the best interest of the fish or if we don't do anything, is is the fish going to suffer more? It sounds like there's a lot of managing the client as well in the process. Oh, yes. Now, I did want to talk about hardness. What's the difference between the total hardness and the, I guess, the GH and the KH? Alkalinity and hardness are kind of related. So again, alkalinity is looking at the carbonate ions in a solution. And hardness is looking at the calcium and magnesium ions in a solution. And it makes up a portion of the alkalinity, but not all. It's kind of a a separate thing. Again, our levels are very high here unless you're using, say, reverse engineered water. But if your fish, you know, is having problems swimming, if their skeleton doesn't look right, that's really where a lot of the hardness issues come in because fish really don't take in their the calcium and magnesium from their diet. They get it from the surrounding water. And if levels aren't up above at least 100 milligrams per liter for most species, they start to have skeletal defects. And this is especially important when they're very young. So yes, certainly it is kind of related to alkalinity, but it doesn't have as much bearing on the KH because again, the calcium and magnesium are positively charged ions, just like the hydrogen ion. So unless they're bound to another carbonate group that has to be disassociated for them to be used with the hydrogen. We could get into the chemistry. It might make your head hurt a little bit. I'm getting cross-eyed just thinking about it. But it it is part of the alkalinity, but has different functions on the overall fish health. In your circumstances where you said that the water is always hard, do you actually need to lower that? Or is that for goldfish and beta fish, that's okay for them to have very hard water? Yeah, for those species, it's actually just fine to have hard water. Some goldfish actually can have little black speckles from just swimming in hard water. They're just benign mineral deposits. It doesn't hurt the health of the overall fish. Okay, sure. And so in places where the water is not hard, do you actually recommend adding something to the water to to increase that level? So that's a little bit more challenging. If you have problem source water to begin with. There are, you know, over-the-counter additives in most pet stores that you can add to the water that are just fine. Uh, We really recommend that if you're able to add a source that will kind of be in the system for a longer period of time, we recommend, especially for larger ponds, is crushed up shells. So we have a lot of oyster shells out here. I mean, they, they degrade very slowly. So it takes a little bit of time for them to get going. But once they're kind of in a system and slowly, again, leaching out that calcium and magnesium, that's a better long-term fix. 
I think they have the Crushed Coral 2 is available for some smaller systems. But that that's going to be something that, again, you're going to have to replace it maybe once a year, every 8 to 10 months. But it will maintain more consistent levels than having to add it every single time you do a water change. Thank you for that. I did want to talk about alkalinity because it sounds like you get more problems with alkalinity than you would with about general hardness. I'm more concerned about the alkalinity because it's direct effect on pH, which has a bigger consequence for the fish's overall health. And I think, again, it's just the area that I'm in. I've kind of gotten to ignore hardness for the most part. So I think I'm just lucky that I don't have to consider it as much as, say, a veterinarian elsewhere in the world. Can we now make a little segue and talk about oxygen stress? I know that before you talked about how you can measure oxygen levels in the tank, But what are the sort of clinical signs or symptoms that you see in fish which makes you suspect that oxygen stress might be present? Yeah, so systems that are having fish that are very lethargic, they don't want to eat, they don't want to swim, they pretty much just sit there and look miserable. That is going to be the first indication that we might have a problem with oxygen. Fish that are up and swimming, they have enough oxygen to at least be up and moving around. In tanks that don't have enough oxygen, the fish are pretty much just staying still to stay alive. Don't see it very often. Again, we talked about filters earlier. Those hang-on-the-back filters are great at creating oxygen because they cascade water in above the water line. Sometimes a system that's very contained, if they have a tight-fitting lid and then kind of an insulating case around them, if there's no additional bubblers in the tank, they have you know plants that are going to be respirating overnight. Those are going to be the cases that we're most worried about with oxygen stress, but it doesn't happen very frequently. Thankfully, with most of these these issues, the easiest thing to do is just add another aerator. It's really hard to over-aerate a system. You'd have to probably fill the thing with little bubblers in order to actually hurt the fish. But I mean, certainly if you notice your fish are congregating around areas of high water flow or they won't leave their bubbler alone, um, you might have dead spots. So this is more common in ponds that kind of have awkward shapes, but it can happen in tanks that are severely over-decorated and aren't getting enough flow to certain areas in the tank. That's a really easy fix. What you can do is just take out some of the decors, add some power heads, add some bubblers, and it'll make sure that the water stays better uh, circulated. Okay. Are there any um, specific differences in terms of how you treat, depending on whether it's an acute or chronic hypoxia that the fish are experiencing? No, pretty much any oxygen is going to be good oxygen. So we can go ahead and start starting with, uh, I mean, I carry the little bait bucket bubblers that are battery powered. So if the owner has, you know, nothing better to start with, at least we can start getting them on, on some more oxygen. If it's an acute versus chronic condition, um, the chronic cases sometimes take a couple of days to a week to kind of get out of that kind of low power mode. But most of the fish, once they're able to get some oxygen, they do just fine. Cool. Now, I did want to move on to temperature, and I know that you talked a little bit about the temperature ranges for goldfish and betterfish already, but what sort of water temperature problems do you see in practice? For the goldfish and the bettas, uh, it's actually two different reverse issues. So a lot of goldfish tanks that I see with heaters make the fish voraciously hungry and very, very active, and they actually end up really skinny because of this, because they're not getting fed enough. Because when you're eating and pooping a lot, sometimes the owners back off a little bit on the food because you're making a mess of your aquarium. So goldfish do not need 
heaters. Again, they're just going to eat and poop and do nothing else. So ambient room temperature is just fine for them. With the bettas, if they are not kept heated, um, so this is going to be the opposite problem of the goldfish, if they're too cold, their metabolism isn't going to work very well. And then their immune system is going to be compromised. And that can be secondary to a lot of those dietary compaction issues that we see is if the water is too cold, they can't metabolize their food. So unfortunately, it just means that it's going to sit in their GI tract and coalesce and it makes very, very uncomfortable fish and the veterinarians that try to treat them because we have very, very limited options as far as treatment. Even if you got them back up to temperature, I mean, they don't have big muscly guts like we do or cats or dogs. So it's not, there's not a lot we can do once the issue has presented itself. Just out of interest, how do you treat bitter fish with gut problems? Really the only thing, and unfortunately it does not have a good success rate, is doing hypersalinity salt dips temporarily. So essentially what you do is you have a solution that is very salty for the bettas. And if they sit in it for a couple minutes and then go back into their regular tank water, we're hoping that the water that is now coming into their body will flush out and just kind of super saturate a lot of their tissues and help things slide out. But it has a, that's really the only thing we can do. And it has a very, very low success rate. And in terms of temperatures, if these temperatures go from normal to abnormal, how quickly can you see clinical signs or problems? I mean, fish being those lovely little ectotherms that they are, so they can't maintain internal body temperatures like we can. You can see a change in behavior with bad temperatures very, very quickly, like from minutes to hours in some of these fish. Oh, wow, that's fast. Yeah, certainly. If you you notice your fish is acting a little funky, first thing I would do would be to check the temperature. Because that can certainly cause problems in in behavior, especially if a fish is too cold. They're going to be pretty miserable very quickly. Sure. And how quickly can you make temperature changes? It depends on how far off from normal you are. If you're only a couple degrees off, the quicker you get them back, the, the better it'll be. If you have a serious, you know, lag, if you're able... Again, it's going to be little progress, but it's probably going to only take you an hour or two to bring them back to where they need to be. So when we're talking pH shifts, you know, we're talking a couple days to a week. With temperature, it's going to be like an hour or two. Right, that's actually a good comparison. So I wanted to take a little segue and talk a little bit about algae growth. Can you please tell me how algae growth comes about? And also, how do you manage it? Sure. So unfortunately, if you put a fish in water, it will grow algae. There's there's just no way around it unless you kept the fish in the dark, which really isn't the best option. So no matter what system you have, you're going to have to deal with algae at some point. Now, most systems will have, you know, a little bit of algae here and there. And algae really bothers people more than it bothers the fish. The fish really couldn't care less. I mean, they might not want to look at us anyway. But a little bit of algae on the glass, on the gravel, isn't going to hurt things. It really starts to be a problem, again, if it's kind of overgrowing, if you're having lots of uh, string algae that's just kind of getting in the way of the fish. And again, we touched on this earlier, that during the day, algae, great photosynthesizing, bringing oxygen to the water. But as soon as the sun goes down and the lights go off... The algae still has to stay alive, and without sunlight, it's going to switch to cellular respiration, which takes oxygen and converts it into carbon dioxide. So if there's not enough oxygen in your tank overnight, if your aerators turn off, if your pumps turn off, unfortunately, it means that your fish might be starved for oxygen just based on how much algae is in there. 
Now, a lot of the time you have problems with algae when you aren't keeping up with your maintenance. The two big food sources for algae are nitrates and phosphate. So again, we touched on nitrates being the end of your nitrogen cycle. You aren't doing your water changes. They're kind of building up. You can definitely have problems with nitrate. Phosphates usually come in from source water. And if you're, say, using some fancy additive that they have for coral tanks, because corals use them as well. And the really only way to get rid of these is they have special scrubbing sponges that will bind up some of the phosphate. It really doesn't affect the fish's overall health. They get phosphorus from their diet primarily, a little bit from the water, but most levels in, in tanks, it's really going to vary on where your water's coming from, how high your phosphates are. Nitrates, a lot easier to control. Obviously, you're just doing your water changes. They're not going to come back with the new water. Unfortunately, with some of the more persistent stuff, like the string algae, it does require you to go in and remove it manually, which again, nobody wants to hear. Glass scraping, make sure that if you're scraping it off the sides of your tank, make sure you know if it's glass or acrylic tank. You don't want to use glass equipment on acrylic. Take it from somebody who has damaged aquariums at major aquariums. Um, You want to make sure you're using the right, right tools, certainly those scrubby brushes. It takes some elbow grease But again, if you keep your nitrates and your phosphates low, it shouldn't come back. So that's not usually something that you have to continually do. Usually once you've fixed those problems, it's it's, that's it kind of thing. Yeah. And again, if there's a little bit on the tank, it's not that big a deal. Again, it bothers people more than anything else. And I'm of the school of like, I'm not going to fight it. My my fish tank has a little bit on it. I did read a little bit about like those massive algae outbreaks. Is that more a pond problem than a aquarium issue? Yes, usually it is a bigger problem in ponds because they're outside exposed to direct sunlight. What's great about the indoor tanks is you can really kind of manipulate how much light they're getting. If your tank is getting direct sunlight, you're probably going to have temperature issues as well as persistent algae issues. So we recommend that tanks never get direct sunlight. I mean, if they are Unfortunately, in a spot where they're by a window, if you're able to block the sun from getting into your tank, it will help a lot with the algae levels. Okay. And I read a little bit about UV light and potentially algicides. Can you tell us a little bit about your opinion on those sort of methods or if they're, if they're good or bad? or? Well, or... unfortunately, they're just a little lazy. So the UV sterilizers are safe. However, they're only going to treat the water that they are exposed to. So anything that is rooted in your tank is not going to be treated by the UV light. So unfortunately, it's really not going to do all that much. And if you do have a lot of, say, cellular algae that's floating around, it's just going to turn it from a green to a brown tank. And then you have to wait for all the cells to settle out. The algicides, you really have to be careful with those. You have to make sure that they are for fish-specific systems. And unfortunately, some fish are just more sensitive to them than others. So I'd recommend using a very tiny dose to start. I mean, usually that's going to be enough to at least mitigate your problem with algae a little bit. But it really, you should be focusing on getting your nitrates and your phosphates down and making sure that your tank does not have excess light. Thank you. So we've just covered all the different major abnormalities that can occur in the water. I was just wondering for a little bit of fun if you could run us through a case of yours where there's multiple water problems present and how you go about that. Yes, absolutely. 
so I actually have a really good example. We have a pond currently right now that I think started with a pH of 5.8. The KH is 20. Their ammonia is 0.7. The nitrites are at 0.4 and the nitrates are at 100. The fish also have three different kind of parasites on them. So that is just a big cluster. And unfortunately, it it's going to be a very hard problem to fix. So with this particular case, we have to see that the pH itself is the first problem. And again, we don't want to swing that too far too fast. But we also have insane problems with our nitrogen levels. And it's not just one. It is all of them. So when your nitrates get up to those levels, it kind of backs up the cycle into your nitrites. And then we're all the way back into the ammonia levels are still so high. So thankfully, the source water was okay. But with all these parasites as well now, we have to have something that is in the water that is safe for the fish to be treated while we are doing fairly heavy water changes. I mean, this this turned out to be a pond, so we had a lot more water to work with, thankfully. First thing that we did with this pond was to fix the pH. So once the pH of the pond and the source water kind of matched up, it allowed us to do heavier water changes. So that would be how we got the, the nitrate down. But unfortunately, once you get the nitrate down, everything's going to still be converting through your nitrogen cycle. So we still have high nitrite and nitrate levels. And I'm trying to explain to the owner <laughs> that we can't make everything poof, disappear instantly. So now that we're, you know, making progress for that, we've put the fish on a high salt dose that they can actually monitor themselves with a salt meter rather than using a different type of parasite medication that we can't quantify in the water. So by using the salt, it will treat the parasites. It'll provide some protection for the fish's gills as they're going through all these nitrite and ammonia levels. But yeah, it's just a hot mess right now. But that's kind of when I was presented with the problem, it's like, okay, well, we have to get the pH back to where it needs to be and try to decrease some of these nitrogen products. So I was a little bit more aggressive with my water changes with this situation than say another one that was maybe just having a pH problem. So it sounds like, so pH is probably the most important factor to adjust first. And then while treating that, you're effectively fixing the, well, starting to fix the nitrate problem. Yes. When you mentioned salt in the treatment, what sort of salt were you talking about? I mean, it's just standard sodium chloride. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. We have, you know, just regular aquarium or pond salt is just pretty much straight sodium chloride. If you need a lot of it, like in this situation, there's other sources such as solar salt or pool salt, water softener salt. Unfortunately, there is also a potassium chloride salt, which is highly toxic to fish. So if you're going to be adding salt to your system, the safest thing to add is aquarium or pond salt. Or if you can make sure the bag says sodium chloride and absolutely nothing else. The other thing was when you have so many parameters, how often are you actually testing the water through this process of correcting all the problems? With this particular owner, I recommended daily testing, both before and after her water changes, just so we can kind of get a grasp on how much progress we're making. And unfortunately, we haven't gotten that much progress yet. At least the pH has finally corrected itself. So that's back to normal levels. Now we're just working, again, getting all those those nitrogen parameters through. And my test kit was pretty much topped out. So I have 
no idea where some of these levels actually were that we were working through. Wow. Thank you for that. It's much appreciated, Jesse. I always find with cases, the minute there are multiple problems, things just become exponentially more complicated. So it's great to see how you prioritize things. I did want to make a major segue now and just ask you a few questions to wrap up. What book do you most recommend to vets and why? Yes. So it's actually a book I have read myself several times. It's called The Happiness Equation by Neil Pasricha. I don't know if I'm doing spelling, saying that correctly, but it's P-A-S-R-I-C-H-A. I've read it several times and I always seem to learn something new from it. I highly recommend it to everyone, not just veterinarians. Going down the path to veterinary medicine, you kind of forget a lot of stuff in life. So that one helps bring it back a lot. That's good. I'll put it in the show notes as well so people can have a look at that. Um, But yeah, no, that sounds good. Uh, My next question was, for vets that are just getting started in aquatic medicine, uh, what should they focus on to sort of really enhance or improve their fish medicine skills? So the best thing for people who want to get involved and vets want to get involved in aquatic medicine is to join an aquatic veterinary medicine organization. So there is the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association, which has members worldwide. And in this little tiny niche veterinary community, we're all very nice. We're all very friendly and we love helping people out with cases. So if you have a case that you're confused about, that you need help on, please reach out to someone. We also, through WAVMA, have the Certified Aquatic Veterinarian Program. So this basically will certify somebody to say, hey, you're you know competent to see fish, which can be a big selling point for a lot of veterinarians who are looking for more clients. Um, it also kind of rounds out your fish education because you have to go through nine different kind of areas looking to build your skill set. I mean, when I got started in aquatic medicine, it was pretty much just trial by fire and it worked for me. It does not work for everyone, but don't be afraid to get out there and get wet and go see some fish and ask for help when you need it. Great. The last question that I had was, how can people find out more about you and about your work? I did want to ask a quick question or a side question uh, because I have read that you are actually the author of some books as well. So if you could elaborate on that, that'd be great too. Yes, it's a children's book series yes. that has three different books. So the first book starts out bringing the fish from from the store, doing through acclimation, getting them settled. The second book goes through water chemistry and maintenance and my role as a fish veterinarian, what fish vets can do for fish. And then the third book goes through quarantine and bringing a new fish into an existing system. You know, I thought that was really cool when I read that, that you were actually publishing books there, which is really great. But yeah, for vets who want to, I guess, find out a little bit more about you or contact you, I don't know if you have a website or something that um, uh, vets could have a look at. Yes, absolutely. So you're more than welcome to visit our website at cafishvet.com have a lot of resources up there for people who are looking to get into aquatic veterinary medicine. Also highly recommend our YouTube channel. It's at Dr. Jesse Sanders. Have a lot of videos on different fish procedures, kind of common questions that were asked. We just put up a new video on how to do x-rays on a fish, which I was very excited to get done. It took me a long time, but I finally got it done. That sounds very cool. Thank you so much for being able to take the time to be able to have a chat with me this morning or in your case this afternoon. Uh, Yes. Yeah, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. This was a great discussion. I had a great time. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of The Inquisitive Vet. If you know of any vets, vet nurses or vet students who would be interested in listening in, please share it. Uh, It'd be much appreciated. I just had a quick message for everyone, and that is for those who haven't already signed up to the email newsletter, the IV5. Every time a new podcast is published, I send an email with links to the podcasts and all the tools, resources, and equipment mentioned in each episode. In addition, I also include four things I've come across since the last episode, which I think exotic vets, vet nurses, and vet students would find interesting. They could be journal articles, quotes, blog articles, etc., And it's just a great way for us to be able to share some awesome things with you, which wouldn't normally be mentioned in a podcast. So if that's something you're interested in, please sign up for the IV5 newsletter on our website at inquisitivevet.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. The Inquisitive Vet podcast is brought to you by Bar Vets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Bar Vets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.